We are in Acts chapter 19. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we will be in verse 21. And Lord permitting, I might actually finish this chapter. Um, a term that's often been used, at least from the 60s, maybe before, probably, is counterculture. Uh, it was and still is today in, or cool, although what it means to be counterculture today may not mean what it has meant in years gone by. But there's, cause there seems to be many countercultures. Uh, hippie culture surely could be contrasted to the normal culture, mainstream culture of its day. Uh, LGBT counterculture sometimes can be contrasted to culture today, although one would argue that that movement has tried to close the gap where LGBT culture is just now part of culture. Christianity at times is counterculture. I'm sure some would want to argue it should always be counterculture because surely the world without Jesus will never accurately represent true Jesus-saturated Christian culture. Uh, to my surprise this last week, as I looked into our text, I found some striking resemblances to our culture today. And uncovering it made me ask, where has the culture won in the church? Right? Where has it been that it is not God's word and His will and His ways uh, dictating how we ought to operate? Rather, it was the other way around. And we've just been deceived as the church, or at least large segments of the church, into practicing and believing and operating a world's way inside the church. So, we're going to get a first century case study of when the gospel is at war with a sin-ridden culture. And that seems to be the problem in our day, is that the gospel confronts our culture. And the question for Christians and for society is what do we follow or how do we even operate gospel or culture? So, nothing to be squared, scared, squeamish, or uncomfortable about today. And since we have a lot of text, I have partitioned up our study into three primary parts, one small part at the beginning. But let's read our first uh, selection. I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word. Uh, Verses 21 through 27 of Acts chapter 19. After these things had happened, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. After he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, after I have been there, he said, I must see Rome as well. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed for a time in the province of Asia. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. It began with a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, bringing much business to the craftsmen. Demetrius assembled the craftsmen along with the workmen in related trades. Men, he said, you know that this business is our source of prosperity, and you can see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in nearly the whole province of Asia, Paul has persuaded a great number of people to turn away. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. 
There is danger not only that our business will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and her majesty deposed, she who is worshipped by all the province of Asia and the whole world. Why don't we go ahead and pray. Father, we uh, we always open up your Bible and if we just read it quickly and passively, perhaps words, names, idols, goddess, goddesses, all these things are cultural hindrances for us to understand uh, what you mean or what you intended for us to receive out of this text. I pray that you would open up our understanding, open up our hearts, give us patience with this text. Father, help us to give opportunity to this text to convict us. Uh, help us to yield to your ways. Help us to hear your voice. I pray that you would say what it is that you desire, that you would get me out of the way. We ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. I've been listening on Audible, audiobook software as I go on walks, to a fairly moderate biography of President Trump. It speeds through his upbringing and career up to becoming president, and I've just kind of gotten in the book to the campaign of 2015, 2016, because I missed it so much. And uh, I listened to about two and a half books already on President Trump from a I'll just say radically spiritual and super admiring author on Trump that I decided while I didn't want to hear a liberal bash on him, I did want to hear another perspective. And uh, so far, this author, Conrad Black, doesn't seem to be bashing on him, but he's also not apologizing for him either. Uh, he, In other words, he's he's perhaps being a bit more objective than maybe mainstream media was on him, but he is also not worshiping him either. And one of the things, obvious for any who person who thinks about it, that this author picks up on Trump and in, in his campaign, is Trump was running on a populist platform. And if you need a, a definition of populism, the first definition at dictionary.com, which is practically the Bible, no, not really, but says it very well that... um Populism is any of various, often anti-establishment or anti-intellectual political movements or philosophies that offer unorthodox solutions or policies and appeal to the common person rather than according with traditional party or partisan ideologies. Uh, Trump was running and is still running on rhetoric that says what we have now and where we are going is bad. It needs to be rectified. This needs to be rectified radically. Uh, everything that's been uh, attempted by the powers that be often fail miserably. And I guess it was reading this book that brought this to my mind as I began studying my passage. Uh, what we have in this passage is, is three broad movements. The rumblings of discontent. Then we'll look at the riot of discontent, and then we'll look at relinquishing of discontent. But before we consider the rumblings of discontent, Luke has in our book some kind of some itinerary information. Don't you love when you get to read other people's travel schedules? And um, first we read, after these things had happened, and if you were here or if you've read up above in your Bibles, you know so that some spooky spiritual stuff just happened. 
like Jesus, whose robe was touched in a crowd, and he apparently somewhat involuntarily healed someone, and like Peter, who early on in Acts, his very shadow was sought so that uh, it could fall on people and they would be healed, so we heard that the very gear that Paul likely wore as he made tents, which was his vocation outside of, or alongside, I should say, his ministry, these clothes were basically sought, and whenever they were found, they seemed to heal people. And Luke tells us, uh, the power of God is to be blamed here. Now in Ephesus and in Paul's day and age, there were magicians, exorcists, spiritualists, and so forth. And one group decides that they want to try and one-up Paul. They think that this healing ministry is maybe stealing their show. And so they figure that God's healing through Paul, just like anybody else does miracles. Well, Paul is obviously using all the right words. You gotta say the right spell to get your results. Well, this plan backfires on them, and the first time they give it a try, they come along some actual demons. The demons were like, we know Jesus, we know Paul, who are you? And they overpower these charlatans, and it only goes to reinforce the validity, the power, and the testimony of Paul, and of the gospel of God that he is preaching. From Ephesus, we're told that the entire province of the ancient Roman Asia, which is just the Roman name for Turkey, this is the place where the seven churches of Revelation uh, would be, uh, and it's also where Timothy would eventually minister at, and it's also where John the Evangelist would call his home church Ephesus. All of this is booming here in Paul's third missionary journey. And so... After these things happened, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, basically Greece. And after I have been there, he said, I must see Rome as well. So Jerusalem and Rome is actually the schedule for the remainder of the book of Acts. And so you're like, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We're coming to the end of this book, Kevin. Thank you. And um, verse 22 he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed for a time in the province of Asia. I think I jumped ahead. I did. But that was verse 22. And what I have up here is highlights of 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9 to just show you that Paul, during this time, the very text we're studying is actually probably when he wrote the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Because he had been to Corinth in his second missionary journey and he likely wanted to send a letter with Timothy back to Corinth. But now we come to the rumblings of discontent. In verse 23, we read, 23 through 27, I should say. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Anybody else think about there's a disturbance in the force? <laughs> I guess it's just me. <laughs> it began with a silversmith named Demetrius who had made silver shrines of uh, Artemis, bringing much business to the craftsmen. Demetrius assembled the craftsmen along with the workmen in related trades. Men, he said, you know that this business is our source of prosperity. And you can see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in nearly the whole province of Asia, Paul has persuaded a great number of people to turn away. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now, we'll do verse 27 in a minute, but... I know there's talk of 
ancient tribal gods and guilds and whatnot, but to get you thinking of the sort of discontent that this Demetrius guy is talking about, imagine if a great spiritual revival broke out in the heart of Las Vegas. And we're talking about genuine revival that along with gospel-centered preaching challenged, as the Bible does, notions of gambling, uh, sexual immorality, uh, indulgence, and so forth. In other words, all the stuff that Las Vegas makes money off of. I mean, imagine impassioned preachers like Paul gaining momentum, a hearing, and a following that decried, no, don't waste your money at the casinos. No, don't go to the shows that make money off of bare skin. Well, what would one do in Las Vegas? Demetrius here is an an artisan, a silversmith, whose primary income is literally making the idols or the statue and replicas of either the goddess Artemis herself or her temple, which was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And in our text last week, a bunch of convicted Christians burnt up to what amounted to, in our currency, six million dollars worth of spellbooks. They were convicted and said, we don't need these, they burnt them up. We were also told last week, and I alluded to earlier, that the entire province of Asia, uh, the region of current-day Turkey, is being reached. The gospel is overtaking it. And if they can burn up six million dollars worth of spell books, they probably won't be interested in cultic souvenirs. So Demetrius gathers people in his trade, his guild, silversmiths and idol fashioners like him, and he laments about this. He accuses Paul of something Paul said in Athens and no doubt repeated in Ephesus if the shoe fit. Uh, Paul's word was, words were, therefore, being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. So, what Paul in his gospel brings is a challenge to the status quo. And it's understandable because it's an attack on, no doubt, Ephesus's biggest income maker. Its income was tied to cult worship. In fact, once a month, a year in Ephesus, during the supposed month of the goddess's birth, there was a month-long celebration. And this is where all the tourism happened. It's estimated that over 30 ancient cities had cult centers for this cult of Artemis. So it was a big deal in this polytheistic society. Like, there's other gods, but then there's Artemis. And Demetrius was sounding the alarm. He's saying, this is big. This Christianity thing, it's going to completely undermine our economy. It's already uh, convinced a bunch of people to burn their spell books. It's going to slow down the tourism. It's just bad, bad, bad. And then he lumps in the bad economy with religion. Verse 27. There is a danger that not only our businesses or business will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and her majesty deposed, she who is worshipped by all the province of Asia and the whole world. I mean, let's be honest. If some outside force radically upsets your pocketbook and messes with your religion... You're a little bothered. 
I'm not naming names because I already named him earlier, but I've heard of political platforms that instead of running on hope, runs on this sort of alarmism. Your money is being mismanaged and your religion is being undermined. This man, Demetrius, had a goal in mind. Our beloved goddess, her very reputation is at stake if we don't do something. Now the connections to a recent politician even becomes more eerie, for me at least. As we move to the riot of discontent, it starts with a slogan. It's not make America great again or save America. But when the men heard this, they were enraged and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? As in... It centers on their religion and a national identity. It centers on their nationalism. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis worshippers were no joke, too. Sometime earlier, the followers of Artemis were abused by, not Sardines, but Sardians. (laughs) That is, residents of the town of Sardis. Sardis is one of the locations in the churches of Revelation, but sometime prior... Non-Christians from Sardis had apparently abused Artemis worshippers, and apparently 45 Sardians were executed. Don't mess with them. So, there's some precedent here for rowdy Artemis-worshipping Ephesians to get a little violent. Verse 29, we read, Soon the whole city was in disarray. They rushed together into the theater. Now, the theater was, uh, as we'll see, was likely a place where Ephesians did their citywide council meetings. They had big civic discussions, and they no doubt had entertainment there as well. It was community building. And the mob is rushing into this theater, dragging with them, uh, excuse me, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. I mean, after all, it was the Christians that the mob instigator was targeting. Apparently, they were released later. We can only deduce it by the end of this passage, but they are mentioned later on in scriptures, seeming to be alive and well. But an angry, riled-up, Artemis-worshipping Ephesian mob had these two men in the theater. What are they going to do? Verse 30, Paul wanted to go before the assembly, but the disciples would not allow him. Even some of Paul's friends, who were officials of the province of Asia, sent word to him, begging him not to venture into the theater. Paul had guts. (laughs) One has to, to say this about him, but before his Christian conversion and after, he was really not one to step back from danger. Uh, Up to this point, he'd already been stoned uh, to death, if not certainly dead. You can go and read that later in Acts 14. 19 and 20, some wonder if he was just unconscious or really dead and had a resurrection. But the point being is I have no doubts that it required uh, disciples, likely some of the Ephesian Christians there, and these officials to hold him back, to restrain him from getting involved. Uh, Paul was ready to take on an angry mob. In fact, um, some wonder as he writes about having to face the wild beasts in Ephesus. He writes that actually to the Corinthians. Again, the letter he's writing. And some wonder if he's actually referring to these wild riding, rioting Ephesians and not really wild animals. <clears throat> but Paul is not about to let his companions die for his sake. But did you catch Paul's friends' titles? Officials 
of the province of Asia. The term here, as the BSB notes for us, is actually Asiarchs. And I don't know why they didn't use that. I mean, everybody knows what Asiarchs are. Um, they were officials of the province of Asia, but they held considerable power. They had one-year terms. Uh, they can hold it. Mul- they could be chosen for it multiple times. And the best way I could word it, so you might understand it, is they were Rome's PR campaigners, <laughs> uh, public relations campaigners, to put it colorfully. They would preside at games. They would try to keep Rome's image up across the empire. But most of them were connected to Ephesus, since Ephesus was definitely a Roman powerhouse city. Again, one of the four biggest cities, the fourth biggest city in the empire. And apparently Paul had made friends with some of them. And even they were telling him, Paul, a Roman citizen as well as a Christian, stay out of this. You're you're the target of their hatred. And legal or not, they'll have you dead if you enter that theater. That's probably the tone of the advice. Verse 32 Meanwhile, the assembly was in turmoil. Some were shouting one thing and some another, and most of them did not even know why they were there. (laughs) As I was said, the theater could be a place for business meetings in the town. And it could be that as the riotous crowd headed towards the theater, people got the idea. Is there some emergency? What's going on? Let's follow. Let's go. You know, I don't know if it's been used this way since I've been here, but Imagine if the church bell rang out on a Tuesday over and over until enough people gathered. People would realize that there's uh, an emergency. And that's probably kind of what happened with this big riot going to the theater, not knowing what's happening. Let's just follow. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward to explain himself, and he motioned for silence so he could make his defense to the people. Now, the Greek here is tricky. The actual Greek. I do like how the CSB put it. The CSB says, Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand. Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. And the idea here could possibly be, and I say possibly because, again, the Greek is tricky and there is reason for disagreement, but it's possible that the Jews are hoping to make a defense for their own sake. Because like Paul, like Christians, Jews are monotheists and should be equally against idolatry, but they would just rather defend themselves and let let all the Ephesian vitriol fall on Paul and the Christians, not at all people who are against idolatry, period. Does that make sense? So they're looking for somebody to defend. Hey, defend at least the Jews for us, Alexander. We're not involved in this. Verse 34 I don't know why those words aren't coming up. There we go. But um, they, when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. My slideshow is having trouble. There we go. In other words, they're not having it with Alexander and the Jews. By this time, the riot, the crowd, the anger... The animosity, it's taken on a life of its own. Enemies have been targeted, Paul. But like cancel culture, the targets suddenly bleed into symbols. (laughs) Suddenly, Alexander and the Jewish community who probably lived in Ephesus up to this point with little consequence, suddenly they should share the fate of Paul. Because they're monotheistic. 
while Paul is against idols, it says right in Jewish law, don't make idols, serve only one God. I've been picking on the Trump movement a lot, so I wanted to pick on the other side because equal opportunity and all that. Um, Political extremism, when it gets to this point, it's prone to this sort of dumb, stupid madness. People get so upset, and it's like a collective temper tantrum. Um, I saw it Wednesday with a boy who shall rename nameless. I don't know if I, you know I know any boys. But one of my boys couldn't play with a toy. And as opposed to having a little bit of sense talked into him, a calm reasoning, they opted to stomp upstairs and throw a giant fit. We do that too. Um, in the face of reasoning, sometimes we even do that too. These guys yell their slogan for two hours straight. One of my commentators shared a quote, one lie multiplied by 10,000 voices never becomes the truth. For two hours, who, um, waiting for what, who knows, apparently some violent bloodshed to take place, maybe hoping to put an end to Paul and what he's doing, to put an end to the gospel's threat. But then a strange thing happens as we move into the relinquishing of discontent. A strange thing that reminds me of a Jewish violent reaction to Christianity back in Jerusalem early on in Acts. But first, let's take a look here as to what's happening in Ephesus. Finally, the city clerk, now don't let that term confuse you. This is probably the closest to mayor that Ephesus had under Roman rule. Quieted the crowd and declared, men of Ephesus, doesn't everyone know that the city of Ephesus is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven. Now, the King James, interestingly, had Jupiter here, as in fell from Jupiter. Uh, The Greek seems to suggest the skies or the heavens. Some have speculated that perhaps the Artemis cult started as a result of a meteorite hitting the area. Some have thought that. Um... The point is that the clerk is making, though, is let Artemis defend herself. Sorry, I thought I was advancing slides, but apparently not. Let Artemis defend herself. We don't know if the mayor is a cultic believer. I mean, since he's sympathetic with Rome, he could not be. Uh, He could just be a politician calling their bluff. You're so uptight about the great Artemis. Well, believers, let her defend herself if she's all that. But it also reminds me of Paul's teacher Gamaliel early on in Acts. He calmed down another mob, a mob of angry Jewish leaders saying, hey, uh, this is what Gamaliel basically said. If this Jesus thing is the real deal and is from God, we shouldn't stand in the way. If it's not of God, it'll die down of its own accord. Well, that's kind of the reasoning back here in Ephesus. Artemis is a goddess, remember? Verse 36, Since these things are undeniable, you ought to be calm and not do anything rash, for you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed our temple nor blasphemed our goddess. So if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the the courts are open and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another there. Verse 39, but if you are seeking anything beyond this, it must be settled in a legal assembly. For we are in jeopardy of being charged with rioting for today's events, and we have no justification to account for this commotion. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. 
he manages to speak some sense into the riot. And for the umpteenth time in the book of Acts, this is actually a common theme that Luke has put in here, is the fact that all the rioting and hating and vehemence comes to a head only to have a sensible outcome, which shows us here, even up to this point, Rome really had no problem or direct persecution of Christians. Outside of Pilate being strong-armed by the Jewish hierarchy against Jesus, over and over again with city officials in the empire, they meet these angry mobs ready to kill Paul, and they respond, they respond almost just like this. Well, go about it legally. <laughs> There's nothing we can do here. If it's a real problem, the courts will decide. All Demetrius was upset about was losing money. That's not really against the law. People deciding where they want to spend their money based on new convictions they might receive has nothing to do with breaking any laws. You know, sometimes we look in in books like the Gospel accounts or Acts, and I think we might have a tendency to look to the good guys and say, well, that's us. And so in our story today, I wonder if we've been tempted to look at Paul and the disciples and say, I'm a believer, wow, what would I do if a bunch of angry Ephesian Artemis worshipers got riled up and I had to fear for my life? And, and I don't know, I wonder if we might give ourselves more credit than we deserve at times. See, I wonder if in our politically charged, polarized world, if maybe we've not felt the angst of possibly losing our idol statues or Artemis cult worship, but as I've alluded to throughout this message, maybe at times, if we're not careful, we've been drawn into rhetoric about losing our hallowed culture, losing to ideas and notions that are against everything we know and love. I'm not here to say that I believe we should surrender to that, and that's the new gospel. If that's what you're hearing, you're hearing wrong. But what I am saying is not only do I believe Christians should be countercultural in thoughts, ideas, moral ethics, worship, and so forth, but what about practices? What about the ways we operate, the way we seek change, or the way we might prevent change if that's what's necessary? See, we might detest strong-arming people marching down the road, shouting things at the top of our lungs that are anti-God, anti-His ways and His values. But for some reason, many Christians seem to fall in line if an aggressive tone with similar practices are taken. Suddenly, out of anger and out of resentment and out of a long line of being the underdog and being maligned in the culture, we'll fall in line behind angry movements shouting our ways and our values. When oddly enough, while Paul will say here and there, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, treat me fairly, I've never seen him leading angry, forceful, imposing parades throughout any cities. While John the Baptist will boldly cry out for repentance, I've never seen him instigating riots like the Ephesians. And while Jesus might turn over temple tables, he's only doing that in the house of worship. <laughs> while he's dining with sinners, and letting accused prostitutes into his company. What if the kingdom of God wins when we carry our cross to our deaths like Jesus did? What if victory comes through surrender? What if change doesn't come from brute force and outer strength, but from resolved prayer and inner integrity? What if while impatience and warring conquers by coercion, 
patience and serving conquers by persuasion. Right, is there a reluctant amen to that at least? <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and pray? Father, you tell us the Gentiles lorded over people. You also tell us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You've ushered in the kingdom of God. You did it with peace, loving, service, gospel proclamation. The one time somebody in your army drew a sword, you told them to put it away. Whose kingdom is still standing? Rome or yours? Father, uh, sometimes we're so easy to find people who agree with us in terms of feeling maligned, feeling like everything we love and hold dear is being ripped away. Help us to go about seeking change, seeking what's right in your ways and, and not the world's ways. Father, help us to see the value in the way that you and your disciples spread the kingdom of God. If we look into the Bible and find that from whenever you died and resurrected and whenever persecution came on the church, your kingdom did nothing but grow. It doesn't make sense to us. Why are all, why is all the persecution happening but the kingdom still growing? Maybe it's because your truth and your love and your peace and your ways are a lot more desirable. So help us to not fear, but to trust that your kingdom will be remain standing in the end. Other nations will come and go. But you've invited us to a kingdom that endures forever. Thank you for that. Help us to be living that out day in and day out. Help us to be a voice like Paul, a voice of reason, a voice like Jesus, a voice of peace, of love and service. And help us to not get drawn into the Ephesian riots of our times. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would have your way in our lives and hearts. And please see us home safely today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.